week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Americans think of a neighborhood, the first thing that comes to mind is value. What type of homes are in the area? What size? How old? What amenities? What facilities are nearby? Notice that we have taken a term that refers to the generational fellowship of a community of human families and repurposed it to refer to buildings. Without realizing it, you drive past an empty development and refer to it as a new neighborhood even though no one has moved in yet. The love of money and the pursuit of happiness have taken us to a world where an empty box with amenities is our reference for neighbor. Not so in Luke, where Elizabeth still receives God's great mercy among neighbors and relatives who rejoice with her. And it has nothing to do with property or value. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 to 58. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 446 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have demonstrated in our hearing of chapter 1 of Luke, at least up until this point, that the authors are dismantling the power and authority of institution in the mind of the addressee or addressees of the text. They silenced the priest, they disassembled the temple, and frankly did not empower the women in the text as contemporary readers would have us believe who would impose their ideology, be it some form of social justice thinking or feminist thinking on the text. Because remember, there are no good guys, there are no heroes in scripture, there are just human beings who are all bad actors, who sometimes act correctly because they obey the commandment, and there is the one in the heavens who is good who issues the commandment. But there's the criticality of this one in the heavens who shows mercy upon the human race despite itself. And this mercy is expressed in the things that he makes with his own hands, the things that he creates, and these are two different words in Hebrew, make and create. And they only function positively when he is the maker and he is the creator. Again, critical points from the Tanakh. It is God who is the maker and the creator. If we attempt to usurp his function, we mess it up. 
That's why he has to undo the temple that we make with our hands so that he can make a child with his hands. And that's the value of your observation, Richard, that having disassembled and destroyed the temple in chapter 1 of Luke, God moves through his spirit from womb to womb. And now, having accomplished this, it is time for Elizabeth to give birth. Like you're saying, this turning upside down the things that human beings build, that human beings create, God is moving from womb to womb, because that's where we're seeing the Holy Spirit appear, is from womb to womb, and in these words. There is no Holy Spirit in the temple. The angel comes down and makes his pronouncement, but then the work is done outside of the temple. And of all the great things, the proud, the exalted, the rich, all of these God has no place for it, and God brings them down in order to put his own people where he wants them to be. And so this Holy Spirit is moving from womb to womb, not willy-nilly. It's accompanying these words. The Holy Spirit, the two people that it affects most, Mary and Elizabeth, who give birth to Jesus and John, they all function as four. You have the two mothers who are giving and receiving this Holy Spirit, and then you have these two teachers who come afterwards, Jesus and John. And John goes out into the desert. We mentioned this earlier. John goes out to the desert, and that is his place. But then Jesus leaves the city, and he's not very eager to come back. At least that's what we've seen in Matthew and Mark. I'm interested in seeing how this plays out again in Luke. I'm not expecting huge differences. I don't think Jesus is all of a sudden going to become a fan of the city in Luke, unlike Matthew and Mark. But this interplay between Jesus's movement and the city is always something important because it does play into what you're saying, Father, the depiction of the city as the source or the base or the keeper of anything valuable. God is ready to turn everything upside down. That's what Mary's been saying all this time. Mary is speaking the words of everything turning upside down. Elizabeth is receiving all the words of everything being turned upside down. John, we know, is receiving all the words of everything being turned upside down. And then Jesus is going to be the next one who's going to be teaching and showing how everything is turned upside down. Nothing, nothing that human beings lay out, that human beings plan, that human beings establish, that human beings create can stand. Because there's only one who stands out. There's only one whose word stands out. And there's only one whose institution stands out. But his temple and his city are in the heavens. We can't see them. They stand out so far we can't even notice them. We have to catch up with him. He's not going to catch up with us. Occasionally, he'll fall back to allow us to catch up. That's what he does with the ones who have been put down. So the ones of low degree and the hungry and his slave, those are the ones that he's going to help from time to time. So he'll come back. He'll give a message. He'll give a little extra help. He'll do a little something for them to help them out of his mercy. But what's left of 
human beings' ingenuity, it's not going to stand. At the end of Matthew, we heard what God's control looks like. We keep hearing in St. Paul's teaching that slavery to God is not the same thing as slavery to Caesar, slavery to Christ, slavery to God the Father through Jesus Christ is not the same thing as slavery to Caesar. Your slavery to the law of Moses is not the same thing as your slavery to Pharaoh. It's a dominant theme in Scripture. What does this mean? What does it mean to be a slave to the kingdom as one living under the heavens? to the kingdom of the heavens. Well, at the end of Matthew, it means that you roam freely out in the field under the heavens, following the shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the metaphor of shepherdism. You're free, but you have to obey the voice of the shepherd. But you're in an open field. So you mix freely with the other Mishpahot, the other families of the earth. It's anti-boundary, anti-identity. When a human being tries to manifest or express power, they impose control. And their control, be it psychological, ideological, or physical, always imposes boundaries, and restrictions that divide God's people. And by God's people, I mean every kind of human being. When you put two or three kinds of people on the operating table, the liver, the kidney, and the stomach, no matter what religion they are, no matter what political party they come from, no matter what kind of clothes they wear, their organs are all in the same place because God made their organs. It's the things that human beings make and impose on what God made that draw a distinction between kinds of people. So when you follow the voice of a false shepherd, then you draw a distinction between kinds of mishpahot in the wilderness. And then you build buildings and fences and say who can be inside and who can be outside. But when you gather at the oasis, all of the families of the earth gather. This is what's happening in verse 58. This is what's happening at this juncture in Luke. When God imposes his authority and you submit to him as your master, there is freedom. When you submit to a human master, there are boundaries. So God's control leads to freedom in the wilderness. Man's control leads to slavery in the city, inside a building under lock and key. That is Luke's teaching. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Why? Because that's how it works in the classical world. So Luke is playing the game. 
Luke is being very Machiavellian. It has to be a son because that's how it works in the classical world. It's neither chauvinist nor feminist. Please stop reading scripture and start hearing it. If you are reading scripture, you are looking at it through your lens and trying to determine whether or not Luke is a chauvinist or a feminist. And this is silly. Luke is neither. Luke is anti-male and anti-female because both male and female are human. And scripture is a critique of the human being. Reread Genesis chapter 6. The time, the chronos, was fulfilled. It came to the time. It's time to do something. The time is filled. The time is now full. It's now the bottom of the hourglass. All the sand has come into it. It's now time. So once this time comes, you can imagine it in two different ways. One is that, you know, nine months, there's only nine months of sand in the glass and it comes to the bottom, then it's time to give birth. But also we understand that this is something that God has been instrumenting from the very beginning. I mean, that's why he's sending his angels around to give messages, because this is a specific action that God has made happen. So that first moment of the time being filled. The temple has been deconstructed and Mary has explained in the Magnificat that Anyone can be put in and taken out. There is no exceptional identity or group. So now that that's been clarified, in this sense, it's time for this action to take place because it's been fully clarified. And now in the mind of the addressee, there can be no mistaking that this is not coming from the temple. Don't forget, Mary had to immediately go to Elizabeth and give this word. The word had to be given before the baby was born. Everything is falling into place. Now, of course, it's falling into place. There's an author who wrote this. Of course, everything's going to happen at exactly the right time. That's why when you watch Top Gun, they don't kill the enemy right after he kills the main character. That would be a boring movie because it'd be over in the first 10 minutes. If anything you know, didn't happen right in the nick of time, meh. You write the way you want to write so that things fall the way you want them to fall. And this one, the author is making this story in which God is making everything happen at precisely the right time. Secondly, we have two different words. She gives birth, tekin, and she begets a son, a yenisen, which is a typical word of begetting that you see all throughout the Toledot through the genealogies, and it's even using the same root, a yenisen, genisen, genealogy, they're the same root. We have the giving birth, which is the action that the woman undergoes, but then we have the yenisen, which is the result of that, and that there is a son. So it's interesting in Greek, this distinction between the two words of the action of giving birth and the result of begetting the next generation. Going back to your point about this being a son specifically, why a son and not a daughter? The image that's always used of the teacher is the father and the child is always the son. A word came to Zechariah, the father, and we had a word that came to Mary, the mother. So it's not that God plays favorites, you know, men are his favorites, so that's who does his work. It's not true. We already know that Mary taught Elizabeth with these words. 
when Mary taught Elizabeth, it was in her house and it was from cousin to cousin. But these teachers you have out in public generally would be a man, not that they couldn't be and not that they didn't function as such. Mary functioned as such with her cousin, but the public teaching role was that of men. And that was just the way that things went at this time. There's not an ideological point behind this, because just like I said, the person who's had the best teaching role up to this point has been Mary, and the one who has not been able to teach was Zacharias. A man was shut down, and a woman spoke. So please don't take this as ideological, that these would be men. They have to be one or the other, right? And so in this case, it's going to be a son, and that is the person who's going to be the public teacher, both John and Jesus. It's Machiavellian duplicitous, or at least scriptural in the sense that it's fulfilling the Magnificat, because Luke keeps smashing and lifting up. Because after this, Mary's not going to speak at all. So the minute you try to make Mary your champion, she's silenced, just like Zacharias was previously silenced. So I don't think it's a question of men versus women, or insider versus outsider, or Jew versus Greek, or whatever in Scripture. Everyone is equalized, not in the sense of egalitarianism where everybody is elevated, but everyone is put down in the spirit of Deuteronomy. This, I think, is the critical point in Luke chapter 1. There are no heroes, there are no stars, so to speak. So the minute you say, oh, I see, it's still about the eldest male or it's still about having a man in charge, well, as you said, Mary just spoke. The minute you say Mary's the hero, well, very soon she'll be silenced. And those who read Scripture pick up on one pole or the other in this seesaw, and they misread what's going on. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. This is the text that I was driving at from the start of the episode. And this word in Greek, perikos, that is translated as neighbors, means, in a very literal sense, those who are hanging out around you. In the wilderness, those dwelling in the area in which you are found. That is what a neighbor is. A neighbor means literally those in proximity to you in the place in which you are found, those closest to you. It's the most anti-philosophical word in the Bible. The love of neighbor is all about proximity. You have to think about those dwelling near you in the area in which you are found. And that is why I am very impressed with Luke's conjunction of her neighbors and her relatives, those who are akin to her, sin genis, which relates to your comment about the genealogies, those who are connected to you through your genealogy. They come together through your genealogy, your kin. Luke is conjoining these two, which is, again, a reflection of the dominant metaphor of Scripture, that we are following our shepherd, 
and we gather at the oasis with the other mishpahot of the Adama in the wilderness. We gather at Midian with Jethro. And the Lord displayed his great mercy. Mercy is connected to the wombs in the Gospel of Luke. But his mercy, which he is showing first here toward Elizabeth, is not for Elizabeth, who represents one community. It's for Elizabeth and her relatives and those dwelling next to her relatives. This is the Pauline Gospel. It's not just for your people, Elizabeth. It's for your neighbors, the other mishpahot in the wilderness. I want to keep hitting this point, Richard, because it's only time, hearkening back to your point about Chronos, it's only time for this action, the Lord's mercy, when we have dismantled the boundaries that city builders set up so that the others dwelling near your family can receive this mercy as well. And then, of course, it is John who heralds the coming of the Lord's anointed. The whole point of having the neighbors and the relatives rejoice is that they're the ones who are invested in the same outcome as you. Periikos, those are the houses around you, literally. Peri, around, ikos, house. So periiki are the people who live around. Now, this is not America where you know you decide you need a bigger house, so you sell your house and you go buy a bigger house, or you get old, you want a smaller house, you sell your house, you buy a smaller house, and you move from place to place. This is not the case. It is not easy to buy and sell real estate, so you stay in the same place generation after generation after generation. Now, there may be no blood ties between you and your neighbor, but your grandfather was neighbor with their grandfather. And the outcome is what you have today. And if the both of you don't work on your house and take care of your house, then both of your grandchildren will suffer because there won't be a good place to live. And it's up to both of you. So neighbors is not like Egan, Minnesota, where you may know their name, you may not know their name, you may wave at them when their garage door is closing on them as they pull into their driveway, and occasionally you might scoop their driveway if they're out of town. That's not what we're talking about, because that's a temporary relationship. And the same with these relatives, they all are part of the same family, which means they're part of the same inheritance, and it all needs to be taken care of. Okay, so there's a worldly aspect that keeps these together, that they're the reason why these are important units in the ancient world, because that's how things got going since you, you know, it's like the Somali community. The Somali community is much tighter knit than the German community in Minnesota. And one of the reasons why is because in the Somali community, it's expected that if anybody dies, the rest of the community pays for all expenses for the family of the deceased. So Germans buy life insurance and Somalis don't buy life insurance because the community plays a different role for them and the community for the Somalis. And if you talk to a Somali, when they talk about relatives, it means something very different than the descendants of the Germans because a relative is anyone who has an investment in the family, in the tribe, in the clan. These are all the people who come together, and they're all grateful for this mercy that has been shown to Elizabeth. 
Now, I also love how this is stated in Greek because it is emegalinen kyriosto eleos of two. It's hard to translate, so I think it's translated as best you can, but the Lord made great his mercy with her is technically what it is. He made a big deal about his mercy. He could have just taken a woman and says, now you're going to have a baby. But instead, he took this priest who had a wife who couldn't bear because God was going to make a point. God made a point, and the way he made his point was with his mercy. He could have left her to what nature was going to allow to unfold, which is she has no children because she's too old, but God wanted to make his point like he keeps making the same point over and over again, meaning that genealogies come from me. So the child that she has has to be making a point for the Lord, and this is what people are recognizing. Now, they didn't hear the words of Mary. They're going to have to learn, like the rest of the crowds, what exactly this means. They're going to have to hear John's painful words about how you're all lost. (laughs) You better all repent, every single one of you. They're probably going to be rejoicing a lot less in God's mercy once they hear what John has to say, once he can speak. You know, Richard, one thing I want to point out about the etymology of neighbor in Greek, and Father Paul just talked about this on Tarazi Tuesdays, in ancient Greek, the word ikos, house, could function as the household, the family. It could function as the property of the family or the physical house. In Scripture, just like the word bait in Hebrew, which you could speak about, I'm sure, at length, but in Scripture and in this setting, it's ekos in the sense of the household, right? So you gave the example of Egan. In our civilization, where we tend to think specifically about property. In fact, it's in our founding documents, the pursuit of property. We plastered over it with the word happiness, but we all know that our society is founded on the pursuit of property. We think in terms of capital. When we hear house, we immediately envision a building. But in Scripture, when you hear house, it's household functionally in your mind it's household it's the house of benton meaning that whether you live in minnesota or california or you live out in the middle of the arizona desert whether you are on the trail of tears with a bag with your belongings hanging over your shoulder with a stick or you are at a hotel in las vegas with your beloved and your children with you You are the house of Benton. So if Jerusalem is destroyed in Matthew or the temple is disassembled in Luke, you don't need it to be the house of Benton. And that's a critical piece of data for our hearing of the word neighbor at this point in the Gospel of Luke. I just wanted to bring that out. Because otherwise people will assume that Egan, Minnesota is the reference for neighbor here in the Gospel of Luke. And that's opposite of the point that you were making, Rich. A neighborhood is not a collection of houses in the sense that we think of it in the U.S. A neighborhood is a group of people. They don't need buildings. Thank you, Father, for that point, because that falls in line with what I was saying about how generation after generation after generation lives in that structure. So the structure house is related to the 
dynasty, so to speak, house, even though we're not speaking in a royal sense. But, you know, when I was in Switzerland, my relatives took me to the family house. This is where my relatives have lived for generations after generations. Now, when I met the people in the house, it took a while to figure out how we were related. We were related, <laughs> but it took a minute. And even the Swiss people were trying to figure out how exactly they're related. But they're like, yeah, there are relatives. They live in the house. And this isn't the ancient world. This is the 19th century we're talking about. But it was only recently that we started pulling apart this property and inheritance from the family line. That's why if we live in the context of the suburbs, we can't understand scripture in a way that even my great-great-grandparents could in Switzerland. Now, in order to truly understand scripture, we have to be thinking many generations earlier in a very different place in the Syrian wilderness. That's how we actually understand. But that just gives you a hint of how much work we have to do. If it just takes the work of me going from 21st century Minnesota to 19th century Switzerland, that amount of work is not enough in order to understand what scripture is coming from, which is the Syrian wilderness. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.